Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from The Clockwork Man, written by E.V. Odal and published in 1923. Join Arthur on the cricket field in England as something distracts him, causing him to get bowled out. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest I want to help people doze off so they can have a productive day and achieve whatever it is they set out to do. I read a different story every episode to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. Every episode tells a different story and you're welcome to listen to whichever one works for you. Before you doze off, and if you would be so kind, please take a quick moment to leave a review and rating in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. You would be surprised at how helpful this is in allowing me to reach more people who really do need a good night's rest. You're always welcome to say hello or support the podcast at boreyoutosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Chapter 1. The Coming of the Clockwork Man It was just as Dr. Ellingham had congratulated himself upon the fact that the bowling was broken, and that he had only to hit now and save the trouble of running, just as he was scanning the boundaries with one eye and with the other following Tanner's short, crooked arm raised high above the white sheet at the back of the opposite wicket that he noticed the strange figure. Its abrupt appearance at first sight, like a scarecrow, dumped suddenly on the horizon, caused him to lessen his grip upon the bat in his hand. His mind wandered for just that fatal moment, and his vision of the oncoming bowler was swept away, and its place taken by that arresting figure of a man coming over the path at the top of the hill, a man whose attitude on closer examination seemed extraordinarily like another man in the act of bowling. That was why its effect was so distracting. It seemed to the doctor that the figure had popped up there on purpose to imitate the action of a bowler 
and Sobol Kim. During the fraction of a second in which the ball reached him, the secondary image had blotted out everything else, but the behaviour of the figure was certainly abnormal. Its movements were violently ataxic, its arms revolved like sails of a windmill, its legs shot out in all directions, enveloped in dust. The doctor's astonishment was turned into annoyance by the spectacle of his shattered wicket. A vague clatter of applause broke out. The wicket-keeper stooped down to pick up the bales. The fielders relaxed and flopped down on the grass. They seemed to have discovered suddenly that it was a hot afternoon and that cricket was, after all, a comparatively strenuous game. One of the umpires, a sly, nasty fellow, screwed up his eyes and looked hard at the doctor as the latter passed him, walking with the slow, meditative gait of the bowled out and swinging his gloves. There was nothing to do but to glare back and make the umpire feel a worm. The doctor wore an eyeglass and he succeeded admirably. His irritation boiled over and produced a sense of ungovernable childish rage. Somehow he had not been able to make any runs this season and his bowling average was all to pieces. He began to think he ought to give up cricket. He was getting past the age when a man can accept reverses in the spirit of the game, and he was sick and tired of seeing his name every week in the great Wimmering Gazette as having been dismissed for a mere handful. He despised himself for feeling such intense annoyance. It was extraordinary how, as one grew older, it became less possible to restrain primitive and savage impulses. When things went wrong, you wanted to do something violent and unforgivable, something that you would regret afterwards, but which you would be quite willing to do for the sake of immediate satisfaction. As he approached the pavilion, he wanted to charge into the little group of players gathered around the scoring table. He wanted to rush at them and clump their heads with his bat. His mind was so full of the ridiculous impulse that his body actually jolted forward as though to carry it out and he stumbled slightly. It was absurd to feel like this, 
every little incident pricking him to the point of exasperation, everything magnified and translated into a conspiracy against him. Somehow, someone was manipulating the metal figure plates on the black index board. He saw a number one hung up for the last player. Surely he had made more than one. All that swiping and thwacking, all that anxiety and suspense, and nothing to show for it, but he remembered he was only the one that scored once, and that he had been a lucky scramble. The fielders had been tantalizingly alert. They had always been just exactly where he had thought they were not. He passed into the interior of the pavilion, Someone said, hard luck, Allingham, and he kept his eyes to the ground for fear of the malice that might shoot from them. He flung his bat in a corner and sat down to unstrap his pads. Greg, the captain, came in. He was a cool, fair young man fresh from Cambridge, He came in grinning and only stopped when he saw the expression on Allingham's face. I thought you were pretty well set, he remarked casually. So I was, said Allingham, aiming a pad at the opposite wall. So I was, never felt more like it in my life. And then some fool goes and sticks himself right over the top of the sheet. An escaped lunatic, a chap with a lot of extra arms and legs. You never saw anything like it in your life. Really, said Greg, and grinned again. Hmm, he remarked, presently. Six wickets down and all the best men out. We look like going to pieces, especially as we're a man short. Well, I can't help it, said Allingham. You don't expect a thing like that to happen. What's the white sheet for? So that you can see the bowler's arm and when something gets in the way, just over the sheet, just where you've got your eyes fixed, it wouldn't happen once in a million times. Never mind, said Greg cheerfully. It's all in the game. It isn't in the game, Allingham began, but the other had gone out. Ellingham stood up and slowly rolled down his sleeves and put on his blazer. Of course, Greg was like that, a thorough sportsman, taking the good with the bad. 
but then he was only twenty-four. You could be like that then, so full of life and high spirits that generosity flowed from you, imperceptibly and without effort. At forty, you begin to shrivel up, atrophy of the finer feelings. You begin to be deliberately and consistently mean and narrow. You took a savage delight in making other people pay for your disappointments. He looked out of the window, and there was that confounded figure still jigging about. It had never come nearer to the ground. It hovered with a curious air of not being related to its surroundings that was more than puzzling. It did not seem to know what it was about, but hopped along aimlessly, as though scenting a track, stopped for a moment, blundered forward again, and made a zigzag course towards the ground. The doctor watched it advancing through the broad meadow that bounded the pitch, threading its way between the little groups of grazing cows that raised their heads with more than their ordinary slow persistency as though startled by some noise. The figure seemed to be aiming for the barrier of hurdles that surrounded the pitch, but whether its desire was for cricket or merely to reach some kind of goal, whether it sought recreation or a mere pause from its restless convulsions, it was difficult to tell. Finally, it fell against the fence and hung there, two hands crooked over the hurdle, and its legs drawn together at the knees. It became suddenly very still, so still that it was hard to believe that it had ever moved. It was certainly very odd. The doctor was so struck by something altogether wrong about the figure, something suggestive of a pathological phenomenon, that he almost forgot his annoyance and remained watching it with an unlit cigarette between his lips. There was another person present at the cricket match to whom the appearance of the strange figure upon the hill seemed an unusual circumstance. Only in his case it provided rather an agreeable diversion than an irritating disturbance. It had been something to look at, and much more interesting than cricket. All the afternoon, Arthur Withers had been lying in the long grass, 
chewing bits of it at intervals and hoping against hope that something would happen to prevent his having to go out to the pitch and make a fool of himself. He knew perfectly well that Tanner, the demon bowler of the opposing team, would get him out with his first ball. He might linger at the seat of operations whilst one or two buys were run, but there were few quests more unwarranted and hopeless than the excursion, duly padded and gloved, to the scene of instant disaster. He dreaded the unnecessary trouble he was bound to give. The waiting while he walked with shaking knees to the wicket. The careful assistance of the umpire in finding centre for him. All the ceremony of cricket rehearsed for his special and quite undeserved benefit and afterwards he would be put to field where there was a lot of running to do, and only dead balls to pick up. Of course, he wasn't funking that wouldn't be cricket, but he had been very miserable. He sometimes wondered why he had paid a subscription in order to take part in a game that cost him such agony of mind to play. But it was the privilege that mattered as much as anything, just to be allowed to play. Arthur was accustomed to be allowed to do things. He accepted his fate with a broad grin and a determination to do whatever was cricket in life. Everybody in Great Wimmering knew that he was a bit of a fool, and rather simple. They knew that his career at the bank had been one wild story of mistakes and narrow escapes from dismissal. But even that didn't really matter. Things happened to him just as much as to other and more efficient individuals. Little odd circumstances that made the rest of life curiously unimportant by comparison. Every day, for example, something humorous occurred in life something that obliterated all the worries, something worth taking and waking up with in the middle of the night in order to laugh at it again. That was why the appearance of the odd-looking figure had been so welcome to him. It was distinctly amusing It made him forget his fears. Like all funny things or happenings, it made you, for the moment, impersonal. He was so interested that presently 
he got up and wandered along the line of hurdles towards the spot where the strange figure had come to rest. It had not moved at all, and this fact added astonishment to curiosity. It clung desperately to the barrier, as though glad to have got there. Its attitude was awkward in the extreme, hunched up, ill-adjusted, but it made no attempt to achieve comfort. Further along, little groups of spectators were leaning against the barrier in nearly similar positions, smoking pipes, fidgeting and watching the game intently. But the strange figure was not doing anything at all, and if he looked at the players, it was with an unnatural degree of intense observation. Arthur walked slowly along, wondering how close he could get to his objective without appearing rude. But somehow, he did not think this difficulty would arise. There was something singularly forlorn and wretched about this curious individual, a suggestion of inconsequence. Arthur could have sworn that he was homeless and had no purpose or occupation. He was not in the picture of life, but something blobbed on by accident. Other people gave some sharp hint by their manner of deportment that they belonged to some roughly defined class. You could guess something about them, but this extraordinary personage who had emerged so suddenly from the line of the sky and streaked aimlessly across the landscape bore not even the vaguest marks of homely origin. He had staggered along the path, not with the recognisable gait of a drunken man, but with a sort of desperate decision, as though convinced in his mind that the path he was treading was really only a thin plank stretched from heaven to earth, upon which he had been obliged to balance himself, and now he was hanging upon the hurdle, and it was just as though someone had thrown a great piece of clay there, and with a few deft strokes, shaped it into the vague likeness of a man. As he drew nearer, Arthur's impression of an unearthly being was sobered a little by the discovery that the strange figure wore a wig. It was a very red wig and over the top of it was jammed a brown bowler hat. The face underneath was crimson and flabby Arthur decided that it was not a very interesting face. 
Its features seemed to melt into each other in a sort of odd way. He was about to turn his head politely and pass on, when he suddenly rooted to the ground by the observation of a most singular circumstance. The strange figure was flapping his ears, flapping them violently backwards and forwards with an almost inconceivable rapidity. Arthur felt a sudden clutching sensation in the region of his heart. Of course, he had heard of people being able to move their ears slightly. That was common knowledge, but the ears of this man positively vibrated. They were more like the wings of some strange insect than human ears. It was a ghastly spectacle, unbelievable yet obvious. Arthur tried to walk away. He looked this way and that, but it was impossible to resist the fascination of those flapping ears. Besides, the strange figure had seen him. He was fixing him with eyes that did not move in their sockets, but stared straight ahead, and Arthur had placed himself in the direct line of their vision. The expression in the eyes was compelling, almost hypnotic. Excuse me, Arthur ventured huskily, Did you wish to speak to me? The strange figure stopped flapping his ears and opened his mouth. He opened it unpleasantly wide, as though trying to yawn. Then he shut it with a sharp snap and without yawning. After that he shifted his whole body very slowly as though endeavouring to arouse himself from enormous apathy. And then he appeared to be waiting for something to happen. Arthur fidgeted and looked nervously around him. It was an awkward situation, but after all, he had brought it on himself. He did not like to move away. Besides having started the conversation, it was only common politeness to wait until the stranger offered a remark. And presently the latter opened his mouth again. This time he actually spoke. Wallaboo, nine and nine pence, he announced. I beg your pardon, said Arthur hastily. Wallaboo, nine and nine pence. Arthur swallowed several times in rapid succession. His mind relapsed into a curious state of blankness. For some minutes he was not aware of any thinking processes at all. 
he began to feel dizzy and faint from sheer bewilderment, and then the idea of escape crept into his consciousness. He moved one foot intending to walk away, but the strange figure suddenly lifted up a hand with an abrupt jerky movement like a signal jumping up. He said nine pence three times very slowly and solemnly and flapped his right ear twice. In spite of his confusion, Arthur could not help noticing the peculiar and awful synchronization of these movements. At any rate, they seemed to help this unfortunate individual out of his difficulties. Still holding a hand upright, he achieved his first complete sentence. Not an escaped lunatic, he protested and tried to shake his head. And that concludes the readings for this evening. If you would like to listen to another episode, please feel free to do so. Until next time, good night.